1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to James Carhill about his literary debut, Tiepolo Blue. James has worked in the art world and academia for the last 10 years, combining writing and research with a role at a leading contemporary art gallery. He is currently a research fellow in classics at King's College London. In this episode, we talk about evoking the transformative 90s gay scene in London Soho, how James's academic work inspired the themes of the novel and his advice on trying to write without thinking about readers. But first, here's James with an excerpt from Tiepolo Blue.
2: On the afternoon of his 44th birthday, he retraces once more the routes that he walks with Ben to Sissy Racing. The gallery is closed and the surrounding streets are heavy with a mood of summer deadness. There are few people around. On a back road in Kennington, a cat wanders across the pavement, a small striped cat, like a pygmy tiger, and jumps up to position its front paws on his knee, as if desirous of climbing his leg. He meets its liquid yellow gaze before it drops to the ground and plods away. The drab throughway of Black Prince Road brings him to the Thames. The lights of the city cast a beige tint on the clouds. He remembers how it was with Ben, a pink sunset and a dizzying sense of promise. The feeling hasn't gone, but it's mixed now with a rawer pleasure, the harsh concentrated taste of freedom. He turns left and walks along the river. Halfway across Vauxhall Bridge, he looks down at the churning currents. A barge passes underneath, smothered with ropes and chains. Would it be quick, he wonders, to be swallowed up by the river, He thinks of Lethe, the river of forgetfulness, and tries to imagine the flavour of the Thames, a salty, oily, sour suspension. It's hard to believe that it would bring forgetfulness. On the north bank, he stops at the Morpeth Arms and drinks a brown ale, then another, and then goes on past the Tate Gallery towards Westminster. Underneath Millbank Tower, a grey-haired body is wrapped in a blanket, He pulls a bunch of coins from his pocket and scatters them around the insensate head. The man snorts as the coins slide off his bearded cheek and curls his fingers like a baby in sleep. On the lawn outside the Palace of Westminster, a reporter is delivering a broadcast to a TV camera. Don walks behind her across the triangle of grass. He recalls being in the same spot years earlier and seeing a sculpture by Henry Moore, two giant fragments of bone magnified into bronze chunks. And yet, he stops in his tracks. The more sculpture has disappeared, been removed. In its place, on the same granite plinth, is a plaster replica of the Venus de Milo. He stops and examines the statue, so familiar to him. Rapidly, he perceives that it isn't a faithful recreation of the ancient figure, but an act of desecration. The plaster has been doused with a substance that resembles pigeon shit. Rivulets of black, white and glistening green streak down the body from head to foot. Venus's midsection, that lovely point where she swivels within her drapery, has been cut out and replaced with an alien object. It slices through her anatomy like a magician's box. It's an oil drum, caked in rust and turned on its side to present a gaping cavity.
1: Hi, James, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to speak with you today and talk about your debut novel, Tiepolo Blue.
2: Thanks, Chloe, it's great to be here.
1: So could you start by introducing your novel for us and telling us what it's all about?
2: Tiepolo Blue is the story of a gay midlife coming of age. So it begins in Cambridge in the autumn of 1994. And the hero of the story, Don Lamb, is an art historian in his early 40s. He's been brilliantly successful. Academically, he's at the height of his powers, and yet he remains fatally inexperienced in matters of life or love or the world. His career, in fact, most of his life has been spent in the closed, rarefied community of Peterhouse College, one of the colleges in Cambridge. And his ideas about um, art and beauty are very fixed. He's an expert on the Italian 18th century painter Tiepolo, hence the title of the novel. And he believes that he can measure the space of Tiepolo's depictions of sky, um, that he can assign classical proportions to everything he sees in those pictures. And then one day something happens. A piece of contemporary art appears as if from nowhere on the lawn of his college, It's an assemblage of found objects, something not unlike Tracey Emin's infamous bed from the late 1990s. It's a heap of empty bottles and cans and a revolving flashing lamp and an old bed frame. And at first Don doesn't even recognise this thing as art. He just sees a, a pile of rubbish. And then before long, he becomes obsessed and manically hostile until his anger explodes in a very public blunder. And this leads to his departure from Cambridge. So he moves to South London to take up the role of director of a small suburban art museum. And he's assisted in this change of career, this new life by his old friend and mentor, um, Valentine Black or Val, who is a figure who appears and disappears from the story and whose intentions begin to take on a more sinister aspect as the plot unfolds. And it's in London too that Don's belated awakening begins, an erotic, imaginative um, awakening. He strikes up an unexpected friendship with a young artist called Ben, who's one of that generation of artists emerging from Goldsmiths College in the 1990s. And Ben introduces him to new kinds of art, as well as the the buzzing art scene of the 1990s, and then the, the gay scene of Soho. Um, And Ben also crucially induces new desires in Don. But as the story proceeds, we, we see that Don's epiphany is also an unravelling as he sheds all of his old beliefs. His life takes a much darker, wilder course.
1: Yeah, Don, I was saying to you before we started recording, Don is a great central character that you want to carry on his journey with. He's not especially likable because he's a bit of a snob. Um, He's a bit of an oddball and he's quite socially quite a difficult man. As you said, he is someone who academically is incredibly bright and has obviously been incredibly successful. But socially and also sexually, I suppose he hasn't really developed. So I was wondering whether your inspiration for the story started with Don or did it start with a desire to discuss certain themes?
2: Yeah, it it was very much the character of Don that came to me first. So I had a mental image, an impression of a a certain kind of man, a man who's been defined by the institution that he exists within and in a sense, imprisoned by his own success, by his own academic renown, um, not to mention his own very highly developed notions about art. And of course, there are elements of my own experience everywhere in the novel. And I suppose I've observed figures like that in different academic environments over the years, including when I was writing a PhD thesis in Cambridge, um, which was between 2013 and 2017. And I began to wonder what it would be like for that kind of man, um, a man whose erotic and imaginative instincts have lain dormant or been repressed for many years what it would be like for him to break out of his old life and to start a new existence. And actually the thesis that I was writing at that time was to do with British art in the 1990s with the the bold, provocative works of people like Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin and Gilbert and George and so on, and the relationship between their work and the classical tradition, in particular Greek and Roman statues and myths, And it was that unlikely relationship between the classical and the contemporary that maybe acted as a starting point for thinking about Don's transition in the novel from an academic climate, one which is very steeped in classical ideals and aesthetics, into a different realm, the experimental art scene of the 1990s in London. And there was a desire also, I think, to write about sexual epiphany the attainment of a gay identity and that too had to do with my my own experiences um but I'm, I'm glad you say Chloe that he, uh, you know that, that, that Don is a, a snob and a bit of an oddball because he is meant to be a difficult man mm. a difficult character particularly in the early parts of the story and I guess I guess I've always been interested in fiction that deals with or inhabits the minds of flawed individuals proud or pompous or self-deceiving people I think in a way those are fictions people the sorts of people we might not readily empathize with
1: definitely they're the sort of people you don't want to meet in real life but you're happy to spend time within a novel right <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking particularly of uh, you mentioned Don has a unraveling at Cambridge and hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler to say that he has a kind of complete meltdown on on a live radio show. And you're reading that and it's kind of like you're covering your face with horror because, you know, he's completely screwing everything up and it's like a car crash you can't look away from.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's the the problem with Don is that, you know, over the years, he's developed this very sort of brittle armour. In terms of his beliefs about art and the world, um, and that armor proves to be very fragile because when that art installation comes along, it really jolts him out of himself and arrests his senses in a way that he can't compute, um, and that's what leads to this very public blunder where he ends up saying something that he he can't unsay, and it has um, disastrous consequences. Although in the end, it's it, you know it's the onset of his liberation. Um, But you know, I think with with Don, the reason that he can grow as a character and and in the end, hopefully gain the reader's empathy is that the germ of some freer or wilder existence is actually in him from the beginning, Um, in the sense that he recognizes his sexual desires. He's never been in doubt about them. It's just that he's never felt able to act upon them um, before. And uh, even early on in the novel, before he leaves Cambridge, Um, there's a hint of the change to come because he's beginning to look at Tiepolo's frescoes in a different way. Um, There's a moment where he just happens to glance down at his desk where a collection of Tiepolo reproductions are are laid out and for a passing moment all he sees is the colour blue. It's the, the clear blue of the sky that he perceives rather than any of the compositional details that he's so used to analysing and so already at this early moment he's begun to see and to feel something rather than simply to look.
1: I wondered whether you could talk a little bit more about the title actually because um, its meaning is really referenced wonderfully in in the text where we meet the character of Ben and it's very much about he confronts Don about only looking kind of looking away from life essentially and only focusing on this particular color of blue and it's what Don does he is so focused on his art that he's missing his own life around him I suppose so can you talk about the significance of the title for us?
2: Yeah I mean that's certainly true that he's always been fixated on the on the sky but in the past that fixation has taken the form of a desire to contain everything he sees in a sort of net of logic and to map and to measure and to contain um whereas what ben this young artist who he meets in london prompt prompts him to start doing is to think about that sky that blue that color in a different more sort of untrammeled way um and, and and that's why the blue becomes so significant in terms of Don's development. And um, as I say, Ben is this young artist, one of this 1990s generation. Don happens just to meet him in the museum where he's gone to become um, director. Ben is an art handler. He's there helping install a show. And um, then Don bumps into him later in a pub in Dulwich and they get talking um, and... Before long, Don has invited Ben back to the house where he's staying, and they, they, they sit up drinking and talking um, about art and about Venice. And um, Don explains that Venice produces this very particular shade of blue. It's a blue that occurs when the sky is veiled by mist. And he says that Tiepolo, the painter, saw this colour and transferred it into his paintings of skies. He says, if you look at Tiepolo's frescoes, between the swirling bodies and between the clouds and all the other details, it's that blue you see, Tiepolo blue. Um, And uh, as I say, over the course of the novel, that act of looking into a a limitless blue field becomes a metaphor for Don's expanding, deepening senses. And after a while, in fact, he begins to see that peculiar shade of blue in all sorts of unexpected places when he goes to the... um, Lido, the swimming pool at Brockwell Park, he suddenly sees it there, it's the colour of the pool, it's out in the world, no longer just in the pictures that he was analysing in the past.
1: I wondered whether you could talk a little bit more about Ben because, as we've mentioned, the kind of the clash of the classical art and the, the contemporary art is a central part of the novel, Um, when he first meets Ben there's a real tension between them and a a kind of chemistry between them particularly I thought in your dialogue so I was wondering how you approached writing the dialogue between them was it something that came to you quite easily when you were writing their characters or was it something you had to to work out work out because um, Ben's continually kind of provoking Don and challenging him on his beliefs
2: yeah it's it's a really interesting question because Ben is is as you say he's the first person really to Challenge Don and speak to him in a way that he's never been spoken to before. Someone from outside of Don's world, um, and I did have to work quite ha- hard to inhabit his character as much as as much as Don's, um, and to be thinking the whole time about how that younger character might challenge or provoke the older man, the the, the celebrated professor, but 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 in a way that charms or, or, or disarms him, him rather than simply alienating him. Mm. And I think it's it's important to, to understand that Ben sees, he does see something appealing in Don. Um, from that first moment where they go back to the house and sit talking together, Don, um, Ben loves to hear Don talk about Tiepolo and about Venice and about the book that he's writing. Um, and actually Ben spontaneously says while they're sitting there talking, oh, we should go to Venice together. And um, it, It's never going to happen, but it's um, it's the first signal of a sort of compact or an understanding between them, a sort of intimacy. And um, even as Ben finds Don amusing or ridiculous, he wants to know Don better and to understand him better. And so Ben has an openness about him and a lack of prejudice as well as a lack of inhibition. Um, I think it's significant that he isn't turned off as so many people probably would be, by Don's prickliness and reserve.
1: Yeah, maybe you can see there's something underneath that mm. that loneliness that we see as well. I was wondering then if you could speak a bit about Val, who's another of the main characters that Don interacts with. We've mentioned that his motives remain kind of unclear throughout the novel until later on, and he is a bit of a mentor to Don at times. Can you speak a little bit about... Um, how his relationship with Don differs to that with Ben.
2: Mm, yeah, I mean, it, Don is in a way the pivot between those two other men. So you've got Val who's in his early 60s and then Ben, the, the, the artist who's in his early 20s. And in a way, Val and Ben could be seen to kind of symbolise Don's two lives in the novel, his his old world on the one hand, the world of academia, and then his new life, this brave new world in South London. Um, although we do learn during the story that actually the separation isn't quite so simple as that, because Val, the older man, is not actually um, a cloistered academic in quite the way that you might think. Um, anyhow, Val's relationship with Don it seems to be that of an older academic for his um, younger protégé, with the older man sort of guiding and counselling and in many ways shaping the younger man. I mean, I guess you could almost see Val as... A sort of lord henry figure from the picture of dorian gray um but it's it, it's an unequal relationship in other ways besides so val has uh, he he has this sort of easy effortless charm he's worldly basically and he has a life outside of academia as a member of Cosmop- cosmopolitan london society whereas don is absolutely not that um and, and, and actually, when Don first comes to South London, which is almost like a foreign land for him when he arrives there, he moves st- straight away into Val's house in Dulwich, which itself is this bewilderingly opulent place. It's this house filled with art treasures and little mystifying clues about Val's past. Uh, and you could say that the house itself is like a, an emblem or a symbol of, of Val's sophistication and all the things that, that Don doesn't know about Val. And so, yeah, Val has a, has a, a charisma and, and a level of experience that Don himself fatally lacks, whereas Ben, um, on the other hand, as I say, is this very different kind of figure. Socially, he's very different from Val. He walks into Don's life randomly, unexpectedly, but then... Ben, too, has a certain charm or or an allure, you could say, that's that's captivating. But with Ben, it's his irreverence, it's the fact that he has no time for the sorts of proprieties that Don and Val, to some extent, have spent years observing. Um so they are very different, but in a in, in a curious kind of way, Ben and Val are also mirror images of each other. And I do see Don as being, in a sense, caught between them, caught between these two different men who, in their own ways, have no qualms about their sexuality. Um, so Val, in a way, is 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 pre-gay, in that he has no shame or hang-ups about being homosexual, but he claims at the same time not to understand the word gay or the identity that goes with it. Um, Well, well, whereas Ben, who's 20 years younger than Don, has perhaps moved past that identity into something that's more fluid and more indefinable. But for Don in the middle there, finding his gay identity is actually very much about reassessing his life and accessing a new, enlarged way of looking at the world.
0: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: I wonder then because they're such almost like we said mirror images of each other whether they were characters that came due almost, almost at the same time as Don or whether they came out of a necessity to to show both worlds
2: I think they, I mean, they evolved in parallel with Don, for sure, and with each other. And I, I, th- I think they've they definitely evolved in parallel with one another um, because they mirror and contrast with each other in the way that they do. I mean, Don was very much there before anything else, before the plot or the settings, um, but these other men became import- became important at an early stage um, because of what they reflect about these two worlds these two existences. And also these two identities that Don passes between. Although, as I said before, it's, it's, it's actually not quite as clear cut as that because there are things we don't know or that Don doesn't know early on about Val and who he is and the kind of world that he really represents. Mm. So the seeming polarity or contrast is not is not quite as, um, uh, as, as clean as it first appears. And, um, but yeah, they are an important source of pairing either side of him. And there's quite an important moment in the middle of the story, in the middle of the novel, where there's a, um, a private view at the museum where Don's become director. And I think it's the one moment where Val and Ben actually meet. And it's this quite poised, charged, very transient moment um, where there's this kind of frisson of tension between them, of them not liking or understanding each other. Probably on each of their parts, there's a certain possessiveness or jealousy
1: yeah i was gonna say definitely definitely possessiveness that was how i felt when i read it and it was almost like don was very wary about the two of them meeting because yes obviously ben is staying in val's house as well and that's something that he he certainly didn't approach val for permission or or want him to know about ben staying either
2: right exactly and for ben actually he, he he takes a certain sort of relish or glee in the fact that he's um you know, he's just sort of moved into Val's house mm. without permission, or with 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 a kind of um, <laughs> a kind of permission from Don. Um, but yes, that's part of Ben's irreverence, and it's Ben's irreverence towards Val. I think that begins to induce Don to look at that older friend from a different angle, in a new way, and to wonder whether everything um, he knows about Val is um, you know is the whole picture, or whether there are other things that he doesn't know.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the 90s setting and you gave us mm. little clues about the era in the text there's there's a scene i can remember where where Dom's wrestling with the internet for the first time <laughs> and i was wondering whether you picked this period in time because it's kind of like the cusp of change politically in the art world and obviously as well as the internet being being first kind of commonplace so yeah i was wondering whether you picked the 90s specifically because it's such a that that era it's the kind of mid 90s era is you know you're right on the edge of a lot of change in the world
2: yeah absolutely I mean it was a very conscious deliberate choice because the the 90s were in so many ways a a a transitional moment and I guess I was interested in writing a a a fantasy novel in a way but for the 20th century um a story about two very different segments of British society um the end of one world the old changeless world of Peterhouse Cambridge and then the germination of another world, in particular, the explosive art scene of the 1990s. Um, and that scene and the, the work of the artists who came to be known as the YBAs or the young British artists, although they were never that young and they never liked that, <laughs> that term, um, but it all, it, it all had a very special character. And I, I think it was distinctive of that wider 1990s moment, um, really an unrepeatable moment Um, The contemporary art world wasn't as large then or as professionalized as it is now. And there was a real mood of possibility possibility in the air, this desire to experiment um, with artists bypassing all of the old systems of um, the commercial art world and staging their own exhibitions at galleries like City Racing in the Oval, which was this artist run space that actually Don goes to when there's a private view and opening um, later on in the story. Um, and then, as you say, British society and uh, I, the whole political landscape, these were shifting in the 90s and questions that continue to rage today about censorship or shock were were all beginning to be debated. Um, and as we've said in the early parts of the novel, when when Don explodes with anger on the radio, he he commits this this public blunder that forces him to leave Cambridge. And I guess we would say now that he's been or he's, he's been cancelled in a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know,
1: Pre-cancelling.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Canceled before. before yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um before the term really existed although actually there's another moment early on in the novel where um he and val are sort of sitting together at dinner um complaining about one thing or another and val mentions that the term politically correct has kind of entered um parlance and is doing the rounds um but um but but, but it is the case that that that, that in what happens to him Don becomes the victim of a sort of cultural censorship Um, and that does raise this whole live question about how people should behave and how they should conform to type Um, and there's this broader question about what art is and um, or or what art should be and who gets to decide and that becomes a really pointed question Um, and I think all of these are really topical issues in terms of who's allowed to say what or who who has the right to dictate the terms of a debate. So um, I'm really intrigued by how present day debates and issues were foreshadowed or maybe incubated in the 1990s. Um, And you mentioned also the birth of the Internet and actually the, yeah, the internet does have this important role in the novel where Don is working at the museum. Oh, yeah, I d-
1: I'd almost <laughs> forgotten about that scene, yeah. Another another moment of downfall.
2: Yes, a later one where, it, it, mm. you know, a, a, as it happens, they've just got connected to the World Wide Web and, um, and Don goes online and starts searching for... Well, initially he's looking for an art image, but very quickly he's looking for an image of a Roman statue, but that very quickly progresses to... Um, Well, I won't give too much away, but it progresses to something that very much (laughs) is not ours. Um, um, But even this moment of apparent downfall or this moment of a seeming blunder, as so often is the case in this story, it's also a symbol of Don's growing connection with the world, this increasing Mm. sense of connection, this increasing freedom. It's quite a sort of um, radical freedom that he achieves, which includes the shedding of all sorts of things about himself, um, but it's not simply a disaster, it's one of the sort of necessary stages in this kind of very um, vital um, liberation that he achieves.
1: You've touched on it briefly already about how Soho and you, your own kind of self-discovery in London had an impact on your writing of this novel. And you've spoken, I know, quite openly in other interviews about... Um, your own kind of self-discovery uh, when you were 17 and how Don's happens much later in life. Did your desire to kind of write these scenes, uh, particularly ones set in London and Soho, transpire because it was such a transformative place and, and time for you?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think my own experience filtered into the the, the scene where Don goes to Soho um, and other scenes beside Besides very strongly. Um, I mean, I do have a vivid memory to this day of discovering the gay scene in London as a teenager. And that moment of finding my internal self, this part of me that I'd never expressed to anyone or barely to anyone at that time, um, finding it suddenly reflected in the world around me. Um, And that was life changing, actually. And I did want to evoke or to replay that experience in the story at this moment where Don walks with Ben into central London, into Soho, absorbing the whole life of the place and passing from bar to bar in a sort of dream. Um, you know, and you were, you, were, you were asking before about the 1990s, and I do think that the, the gay scene in the 90s and the early 2000s, which was when I encountered it, had um, a special character because new levels of equality were being achieved. There was the repeal of Section 28, um, the equalisation um, of the age of consent. It was this era just before social media, too. So, for many people, for many of us, bars and clubs were the place to meet people.
1: Mm. So, I want to touch a bit on your kind of writing journey, really. And I was wondering whether your academic career has made you more disciplined when it comes to writing a novel.
2: (laughs) I'd love to say that it has, but but, um, (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure, it's a very different kind of thing. I mean, I guess I can see that having parallel activities, whether that's an academic research project or any job besides writing, can help you to concentrate your mind and your energies in those moments that you do devote to fiction. Although not always, Um, I mean, I've often felt that I was spending too long away from the novel. I think we probably all have that. Mm. Um, I've worried that the momentum's falling away and that I'm always having to put other things in front of it. Um, But I suppose it's it's also been the case that sometimes I knew I had an hour, maybe just an hour in a given day to work on the story. And so I try to maximise the potential of that short time. and, you know, as I've said already, the, the, some of the, 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 the themes of the story, or many of them, did grow out of my academic research and the work I was doing. But I guess I had to be careful not to just turn it into a fictional version <laughs> of an academic thesis. I had to try and step out of that quite consciously, probably, um, in order to make art work differently in the story from the way that it would work in a piece of academic writing so that art is not the subject. Um, of a sort of academic distillation, but rather art becomes this lens through which, um, through Don's eyes, the reader hopefully apprehends the world and begins to see the world in a kind of deeper, enlarged way. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, it, I think there, there is definitely um, a difference there, and I had to be quite careful about maintaining that.
1: Mm. I wanted to know, really, have you always wanted to write fiction? Because obviously you've worked in the art world and academia and you've written for several publications, but was fiction something you always hoped you would turn to or always wanted to turn to? And when did you decide to pursue that angle?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the desire to write fiction was always there, but it was there in the background for a long time. Um, and all sorts of other realities came along as they do. So I was pursuing a number of paths, Simultaneously, whether it was as a as a writer on art, or for over a decade, I worked at a a leading contemporary art gallery, Sadie Coles HQ um, in the West End, and that was actually how I really got to know about the art scene of the nineteen nineties and came to know some of the key figures from that moment. Um, and then I channeled that into academic research a little bit later on. So I had all of these other things that were going on, but. Um, I think the ambition or the wish to write a novel was was always there and it never went away. And gradually those other realities, all of those various experiences did begin to coalesce first into that character and then into the story.
1: And at what point then did you kind of decide that you were going to start taking these thoughts of Don and this character idea seriously and turn it into a, a, a novel?
2: well i i remember when i was at cambridge in in the years i was writing that thesis thinking i would never never finish it um <laughs> the the novel was beginning to sort of take form in my mind at least in in those years but i didn't really have time to write it in a committed way but one thing i did do quite often was just write myself short emails when I had a thought about how this character would behave or some of the sort of ridiculous or absurd things that he would do, I began to just write these as notes to myself, um, little fragments of dialogue or sort of germs of episodes, um, and I just stuck them all in a folder in my email and for a long time that's the form the novel existed in um but then it was in i think 2018 once once i was finally free of this academic thesis um that i really had time to go about writing it in a committed way and i was i was working um at the same time so i didn't have a completely clear run but i'm not sure if i would have been that much more efficient at it if i had i just i, I just tried to make sure that I spent at least an hour a day on it um Mm. but it was then that I I I began to go about it in a more um dedicated way and then I suppose it took a year or or at least a year to have a first draft which which and at that point I felt like I'd done it and it was finished and (laughs) with with hindsight I know that that in a way was just the beginning
1: (laughs) yeah yeah it's definitely not true it's not done definitely not done so then can you tell us about how you came to get your agent and how the book deal came from that?
2: Well, I was very fortunate in that my agent, who is the brilliant Samuel Hodder, was someone I've known and been friends with, actually, for quite a while. Um, I mean, I was nervous, I have to admit, about sharing my novel with a friend. I think it's probably easier, um, often easier to send a manuscript to a total stranger. but I did in the end. I shared it with him, and I'm very glad that I did because he loved the story and um, wanted to work with me.
1: And it wasn't too difficult to accept feedback from a friend, then in that way.
2: No, no, it was fine. It was fine. I mean, and I, I'm sure you found this too. As time goes on, <laughs> accepting feedback of, of all kinds gets gets easier, and it, you know. Mm. Um, and I I feel very fortunate in terms of um, you know my agent but also my editor in terms of the feedback i've received and the input i've had from them it's been invaluable actually finding people who love the story um, and understand it on its own terms um, and wants it to be the best version of itself is the best possible mm. thing um, you know because their criticisms are not really criticisms they're said in support of the thing um, and being able to recognize that and um capitalize on it is a really important thing
1: was there much work that you did with your editor or did the sort of shape of the novel stay pretty much as it is now?
2: It stayed pretty much as it is. I, thought I didn't have to change the ending or make, make, make a very radical adjustment of that kind, of the kind that you do here. People sometimes will make. But um, um, I mean, of course, I mean, there were various there were various edits and some some certain contractions. Um, but um Nothing, nothing seismic, which um, I guess was a relief. But I, I, as I say, I was, I was, I felt extremely fortunate because um, I, I found it hard to disagree with almost any of the suggestions <laughs> my, my editors finally <laughs> made. Um, even when I thought initially I perhaps disagree with it, after a few mm. days I began to think actually there's there's a lot of sense in this point Um, and and sometimes yeah I mean the whole writing process is like this but it requires a little bit of time in order to be able to disengage Mm. from the thing and see it again with the help of somebody else's perspective Um, and that's a really really helpful process.
1: I was wondering then whether you had any advice to share for any writers working on their first novel?
2: I guess writing fiction is such a personal process and such a subjective one and it's so varied that it's hard to offer um, very specific advice just because everyone's experience varies so hugely. And in some ways, I take a lot of reassurance from that. When I hear other other um, uh, debut authors, in particular, um, on your podcast, for example, their different experiences and perspectives, it's quite reassuring to know that there's no set there's no set way of doing mm. stuff or looking at stuff or reacting to stuff. Um, that's actually quite consoling. Um, i mean speaking just from my own experience i'd say that it helps initially at least to write purely for yourself and not to worry about how other people will interpret or react to what you're writing um maybe not to even think about that if you can if you can help it because that can be um that can be inhibiting
1: yeah that goes along with the idea of kind of having an editor sitting on your shoulder picking over what you've written as well it's 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 quite difficult to do to shut that voice out but I think like you say and it, it's thinking as well writing that's true to yourself rather than thinking what would this member of my family think to read this I think uh, right. perhaps you'll feel the same yeah
2: <laughs> I think that's right I think I think it's really I think I, I heard um or read Colm Toybin once saying um Always try and expunge from your mind what your family what your closest family might think mm. say about what you're writing because that could be so inhibiting um you know particularly when you're and not only when you're writing about sex or anything like that you 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 have to just kind of remove all of that from your head and write solely for yourself without any kind of um, um any sort of censorship i think
1: mm, definitely so are there any novels you think make good comparisons to Tiepolo Blue novels that you think share a similar theme or similar similar space with?
2: Well I I suppose there are some historical models although maybe those don't count as companion novels exactly. I mean the story is patterned in some ways upon Thomas Mann's novella Death in Venice which of course is a story in which Venice itself becomes um, very much an outward figure of the main characters shifting thoughts and emotions and in my novel in fact when Don comes to South London um, to this leafy suburb of Dulwich, Dulwich becomes a kind of double of Venice with the sort of subtle gothic elements in its architecture and the um, lagoon-like green spaces and then the I mentioned before the Lido in Brockwell Park which, um, which is where Don goes swimming which becomes a sort of second Lido um, and then one novel which um, I, I read while I was writing Tiepolo Blue, although I, I guess it might not seem to bear any direct resemblance, was Saul Bellow's novel Herzog. Um, but I think I was fascinated at that time by this um, in, very intense third-person um, narration, this focus on a single character where you inhabit the mind of this person, this really obsessive, resentful painfully self-conscious man who at the same time is full of romantic longing and the desire for some kind of deliverance or the desire to be better than he is or bigger than he is Um, and I suppose in in terms of more contemporary slightly more contemporary parallels I mean some readers so far have compared the novel with the work of Alan Hollinghurst which is really wonderful to see because Um, for me a a, a, um, a swimming pool library had a huge impact on me um, when I first read it as a novel about gay life and gay selfhood um, and also about London at a very specific moment in the recent past.
1: And finally I was wondering whether you were able to share if you're working on anything new?
2: Yes I am, I'm I'm, I'm currently writing or trying to write a, a second novel which is also about the art world in fact but It's set in a very different kind of art world from the one that Tiepolo Blue portrays. It's the art world of the present day. um, And it's a portrait of the the globalized contemporary art world, a place of glittering parties and titanic reputations and rivalries. um, And also there are three main characters this time, rather than just one, these three very different people whose lives intersect in all sorts of ways.
1: Well, that sounds great, James. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Chloe. That was James Carhill talking about his literary debut, Tiepolo Blue, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.